Welcome to our Holden Village podcast. For over 50 years now, Holden Village has traveled a rich history of faith that has transformed a copper mining town into a vibrant place of education, programming, and worship. Holden has sought to welcome all who seek contemplation and community in the remote wilderness of the beautiful Cascade Mountains. We continue to invite people of all ages to come alongside our rhythms, which inspire and equip travelers for a sustainable life of faith outside the village. And we continue to listen and reflect on our story and history and seek to discover our place in God's creative mission in our world. Our podcasts are a way of sharing our conversations with our teaching faculty around reformation, the reforming of our relationships with the earth, with each other, and with the divine. Let's tune in and join the conversation. My name is John Hergert. I'm a pastor in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America and have been one for uh, 37 years. I just spent the last six months in Shishmaref, Alaska, doing an interim. It is the most northernmost congregation in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. It has been there since 1931. It is the only church in town. Uh, Shishmarif is an indigenous village. Uh, people have been living in that area for thousands of years. It is 22 miles from the Arctic Circle. The bishop from Alaska gave me a phone call about a year ago and uh, said, I have an idea for you. And I responded, uh, what would you like me to do? And I had no idea that I would end up so far north. And so it uh, has a weather pattern that I had never experienced before and was not sure if I was ready for it or not, but gave it some thought and decided that I should go. And so I left for Shishmaref on January the 3rd and got there and it was 23 hours of darkness. And when I left, of course, it was 23 hours of light. So that's the kind of uh, environment I was in. The church still hasn't got to the point where they will let anybody do traditional dancing or drumming while they're there. It, it takes place in the school or in the community hall uh, is where they'll do it from time to time. We do sing the doxology every Sunday. You know, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise all you creatures here below. They sing that every Sunday, but they sing you it in Inupik. Or that, and that's the dialect that they have. They're Inuit people, but Inupik is a typical dialect in which they, uh, so how they identify themselves. But they sing that every Sunday, and that's a joy to hear them do that. It embraces the Christian faith, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but it also says... We have an, a perspective on this. The last sermon I gave at Shishmarev, I said to them, all the things that the church could have told you to not do, I feel very badly that we told you not to dance because it was the nature of their relationship between creation. It taught their children, how does the raven fly? Where does it go? It taught their children, where can they find the walrus? Where are the seals? How does the seal swim? And so when you're hunting, which is essential up there, that's what they, uh, they needed. And we tried to take that away from them. That's my deep sadness. I would say if I'd have stayed another six months, we'd have had them dancing in the church. Yeah, just because I think it's time to say, we did the best we could knowing what we know. We know better now. Let's embrace that, especially as these people try and recover, continue to have an identity beyond just their 
oh yeah, they're way up there where nobody ever has to think about them. And as their island sinks. One of the things that I knew when I went up there is that this is a very endangered place. And so what I decided to do while I was there is to keep a journal and to uh, record some of the uh, things that were going on. Shishmarif is the canary in the coal mine in terms of uh, climate disruption and has been the victim over the last 50 years, really, and much of the island is quickly disappearing, which means they need to move. But there's no money for them to move. And so it's, uh, it's, there's a deep sadness, but also this incredible life in them. They love living in that area and the subsistence that is necessary to live there. Shishmarif is on a barrier island, so you're going to have a natural erosion. I mean, it was the Chutsky Sea, that, which is part of the Arctic Ocean, that formed the island. And what the sea gives, it also takes away. They knew that. Some of the natural things that protected the island have eroded. One of them being that the ice pack which used to come in sometime around mid-November. It would be all iced over. And all through the winter, that ice would build up to the point where it was four or five feet thick. And then it would break up in May. It now breaks up January the 27th. On the 29th, I walked down and saw all the chunks of ice that had been deposited on the shore that were tons and tons. And it also has increased flooding, too, because they no longer have the protection of the ice that took the bad winds and lost some of its energy out in the sea. And so by the time it got to the, the land, it wasn't so severe. Now with that not being dependable, more waves get along the shoreline. There are some seawalls that have been placed there over the years, some more effective than others. There's been a lot of failure in that regard, a lack of understanding even by engineers about what it's like to live there if you want to be safe. And they've done studies and things about wanting to move the village totally off the island. You'd still have probably people that would come there and spend brief periods of time during certain seasons. But as that will diminish, as of course, as the island continues to erode. I mean, it's only a half a mile wide. As the ice breaks up, hopefully normally in May, but this year in January, when the uh, seal and the walrus begin to come in closer to the uh, shoreline. They go out now, and used to be used to be able to go out on your uh, snow machine onto the ice and go out, uh, be able to do the hunting that you needed to do, and then you would uh, come back. It's more water now, so they have to, the kind of hunting that they, they do. The primary target is Ugruk seal, which are a bearded seal, and quite large. And they hump those, they bring them back to the village. Every family has drying racks, and so they will butcher the uh, Ugruk seal. They'll hang the meat on uh, these drying racks. They will let the blubber still be on the skin, uh, but they'll let that sit out and begin to ferment. After a period of time, they cut that, that off the skin, and they use the skin for, for boots, and then they will um, cut that all up, and it basically becomes what's called seal oil, and it is some of the best, healthiest oil you can ever eat. They use everything. For like if they have a walrus, the stomach lining is used for their drums. Everything is used. Even the flippers, they will put them in oil, put them in a container, bury it, let it ferment, and then they'll eat it raw. So that's in the spring of the year. In the summer of the year, they begin to, well, one, they begin to, they get much more mobile. Uh, they can go take, take their boats and go up the Serpentine River. They'll go up to where they have their other cabins. 
They spend time up there during the salmon runs, and then they use nets and then dry the salmon as they come in. During that time, they're also picking blueberries and what's called salmon berries. This is all stored for the winter. This is all the food that they're doing. And then in the fall, September, is when they begin to hunt uh, for caribou, moose, reindeer. Those are the normal protein sources. And they will continue to hunt throughout the winter as they can. They're incredible hunters, and they only take what they need. I saw, I went out one of the times with them, and there is a, a bird that when it molts, it's a duck, I can't remember the breed, but when it molts and loses some of its tail feathers, it's no longer, it can't fly, you know, and it's edible. <laughs> it makes it pretty easier, and, you know, when they hunt, they go out, and uh, I saw this individual who was, he saw the birds, and he walked up to it where he, right as close as, he, you know, he wanted to be, and then he realized that that particular bird also still had babies. And he left it. He walked, turned around and walked away. And I think that's something we could learn something from. Thanks for joining us for another Holden Village podcast. Be sure to view the links in the description for more information or visit our website to find out more about the village. We hope you will make a pilgrimage to Holden. Blessings and peace to you.